World War II. It's known as the greatest generation. And these are their stories. It's the World War II Project. This is the Americhicks with your host, Kim Munson. Welcome to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com. All of these shows are archived there. And sign up for my emails. We'll keep you apprised of all the upcoming guests and topics. And uh, that is AmeriChicks.com forward slash Kim. We'll get you on the list. I am the AmeriChicks on Facebook and Twitter as well. Would appreciate it if you would like and follow me. Uh, Excited for you today. We're going to be talking with uh, World War II veteran Ken Barclay. And this show precipitated from a trip that I took with a team that took four World War II veterans, uh, D-Day veterans, back to Normandy for the D-Day celebrations, returned back to the States, realizing that we needed to capture these stories because each story is unique each story is individual, and they these stories are truly changing my life. So, as I mentioned, pleased to have on the line with me, Ken Barclay. Ken, welcome to the AmeriChicks World War II Project. Oh, it's great to have you oh. on. Great to have you on the line, Ken. Thank you. So let's talk a, a bit about you. Uh, you just had a birthday. Uh, you just turned ninety-five years old on May second, right? Yes. Okay. Well, happy birthday. And uh, tell us, where were you when you heard that Pearl Harbor had been bombed? I uh, was a student at Washington State University in Pullman, Washington, and I belonged to a fraternity, Sigma Nu. We had gone to the church to uh, be formally uh, inducted into our fraternity, and when we came out, they said Pearl Harbor's been bombed. I don't think any of us had ever heard of Pearl Harbor. <laughs> so what went through your mind at that time? Well, it was uh, certainly a tragic thing, and, uh, you know, wondering what the future was going to bring to all of us who were there that day, and uh, not knowing that uh, we would be involved in a war for a long time. Mm-hmm. And did you grow up in Washington State? I did. I, I grew up in Spokane, Washington, and uh, went to high school in a military academy in Portland, Oregon, an academy that no longer exists but was called Hill Military Academy. Okay. And so what happened then after that? How did you, you know, get into the service? Did you continue through college, or what did you do? Uh, in about December of, uh, 42, I guess, it became apparent that we were going to go into service. They, uh, had stopped enlisting, but, uh, you could volunteer to be drafted. And I wanted to make sure that I got in the Army. I didn't want to be in the Navy or the Air Force or anything like that. So I volunteered to be drafted. And I think on the 4th of February in 43, I uh, got on the train and went to uh, Fort Douglas, Utah, I think it was called. Spent several days there. Went down near Fort Worth to a camp whose name I can't quickly recall and went to a basic training. After about, uh, I think, basic training, which maybe 12 weeks, uh, we didn't even graduate. They uh, sent us out before uh, in the 11th week, and uh, I remember we uh, kept the things that we had in duffel bags. We had an A bag and a B bag, and I uh, remember they issued me my M1, and I remember dragging my A bag and my B bag uh, probably a half a mile to get on the train. Oh and it was off to San Francisco. Uh, after a few days' wait, we got on a boat and uh, we uh, went to Hawaii. Did you know where you were going to be heading after that? And what were you hearing about what was going on with the war? Well, we heard it all the things that most people heard, although there certainly was a certain amount of 
of uh, keeping things from the people, I guess. On the, uh, it took, I don't know, a number of days to go over by ship. And uh, every morning and every evening, we would have what you call stand to, and we would all go up on the decks with our uh, life jackets on the thought that there might be a uh, a uh, submarine attack. And fortunately, we got to Hawaii, and uh, I spent uh, a bit of time on Hawaii uh, before I left to go to another part of the Pacific. Okay. And had you heard much? Now, the Bataan Death March had occurred in the Philippines. The Philippines were attacked the day after Pearl Harbor. And, uh, you know, that was a, a, a really deadly march that would have been late 41, early 42. Did you ever hear anything much about that, Ken? I think we did. And, of course, sometimes it's kind of hard nowadays because you get mixed up with what you've seen on yeah. TV and news. Uh, I get it. The way, the way we got our news in those days was you didn't have the TV and uh, you didn't get much on the radio. Every Saturday, though, you could go to the theater, and they had what they called Pathé News. And Pathé News then was what somebody had gone out and taken uh, pictures with cameras, and we would actually see things. And I believe that I saw uh, on Pathé News quite a, bit of it, quite a bit of information about the Baton Death March. Okay. And, of course, MacArthur was was a hero. He had uh, served in the Philippines for a long, long time. And, uh, you know, I shall return and whatnot people mm-hmm. got to know about. Okay. Now, so you are then, we are into 42, you're in Hawaii. Uh, so you're preparing to be, you know, sent to the war front. Uh, so what happened? How? You, what happened after that? Well, when I first got to Hawaii... Uh, we were, of course, they'd had Midway and whatnot, and so Hawaii was uh, being protected and, and expecting a possible invasion. And I went to a place called Kailua, and we did beach guard. We had an old World War One anti-aircraft gun lowered, and we put iron sights on it, and we pulled duty there every day watching for Japanese submarines which I never saw one, but it was great. We swam in the oceans. And after about uh, four or five months of that, our unit got together and we began to train for combat. And uh, our first combat was to get in a convoy that went to, the the Marines went to a place called Tarawa. Uh And we went to an island called Macon Island, uh, Macon, we were a regiment uh, fighting 69th, famous from World War, from World War One, and the Marines were a division. Terrell was uh, very small, maybe five miles long and a mile and a half wide. And in about five days, the Marines had over 3,000 casualties, mm-hmm. which is very hard to process in today's world because you will hear that today or this month or you've had 12 casualties in Afghanistan this month or whatnot and it wasn't that way in World War II and we on Macon Island uh, our regiment we had probably I don't know 300 casualties maybe 100 killed and uh, we went when we went down there, we were in a convoy, and I could look out on the right and see two aircraft carriers. I, look, I could look to the left, and I could see two aircraft carriers. They were the last aircraft carriers in the northern Pacific that were usable because Midway uh, had uh, either been they had either been destroyed or damaged so that they had to go back for repairs. 
So that was, you said that was the only aircraft carriers in the northern Pacific. Was there any in the southern Pacific at that time? To my knowledge, there was, but I don't have much knowledge about uh, the number. I think it was very small, probably one or two or maybe even three, not any more than that. And that's all we had to fight the Japanese left. Okay. So this uh, this particular battle for Macon Island, and that's M-A-K-I-N, right? Yes. Okay. And it looks like that was in August of 42, yes? I would say yes, my... I, I, I jokingly, you know, when you get old, you have a certain amount of mental dementia. And in my case, I often joke, but I say I, I don't have Alzheimer's yet, but I do have Alzheimer's. <laughs> well, you know what? I think I've got a little bit of that myself then on that, Ken Barclay. Uh, so, you know, I certainly understand. Um, just was looking at the details as uh, as we were talking about this. Uh, so, I, may, may I interrupt for one yes, second? Yes, please do. All my life, I have been known by a nickname as Scooter, S-C-O-O-T-E-R. Okay. I, I got that at Washington State University in uh, when I first started there in 1941. Pullman, uh, Washington, where the school was, was dry, and we were six miles from Idaho, which was wet. So we would get our dates, and we would go over to Idaho, get some beer, and <laughs> we would go back into the Wasatch Mountains where they still had snow in the spring, put our beer in the snow, and the girls would spread out the blankets, and we would have a picnic. And this one girl said, oh, look at him, Scooter. I think I'll call him Scooter. I turned around and said, don't call me that. I don't like that name. And so when we went back to Pullman, they went to my fraternity and said, call him Scooter. He doesn't like it. So I have been known as Scooter Barclay ever since. Okay. So should I call you Scooter as well? Do I know you well enough now to call you Scooter? Well, yeah, it would be. And, and people would know me more as Scooter than they would ever know me as Ken Barclay. Okay, okay then that's what we'll do. So I will just uh, reiterate then, this is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks World War II Project, and I am talking with Scooter Barclay and his experiences. So Macon Island, uh, you were involved in that battle. What do yes. you want to tell us about that? I've not interviewed anybody that was involved with this particular battle. I have interviewed... Uh, uh, let's see, one or two of the guys with Tarawa, and then I did interview a young guy who'd written um, a story about his grandfather, Bones of My Grandfather. His uh, his grandfather was buried on Tarawa, and they found uh, his uh, his grave, oh, oh wow. maybe five years ago, you know, just recently. So it's a powerful story. But I've learned so much, Scooter, about well, the Pacific Macon campaign. Was, Macon was kind of, if you think of a crutch, we landed in the part of the crutch that would go under your arm. Okay. And Macon was probably at the most 10 or 11 miles long. And in the center of the island is where the Japanese were. And uh, they were Marines uh, that had been in the rape of Nanking and a number of things. And theoretically, they were all six feet tall. I never got out and measured them, so I can't vouch for that. But... It was very jungle-like, although it was, you know, kind of narrow. Very thick foliage and whatnot. And we, our first encounter with them, we uh, went into that jungle. And uh, I wasn't sure that I could even kill anybody. I, uh, you know, grew up as a thou shalt not kill and Mm -hmm. whatnot. And uh, I had become friends with a person that I had not known before the war that was from the state of Washington. And uh, as we got into that attack, we got forced backwards, and we couldn't bring him out. We went back up subsequently and got him, and the uh, Japanese had bayoneted him from his crotch all the way up to his neck, opened him wide open. And from that moment on, I had no compunction about killing and during the war, I did kill a lot of Japanese. And it's not something to be proud of, but it's something that happened. 
Well, and to that, I have heard that the Japanese, well, beginning with the Bataan Death March, uh, as I've learned about that, that was really, really, really cruel. And what you've just described is really, really, really cruel. And, um, you know, I think that you, I I imagine, get into a protection and and survival mode when you're in war. Well, you know, you you grew up knowing the Ten Commandments, but you couldn't follow them after something like that happened. And then after Macon, we went back to Hawaii and did more training. And our next combat was Saipan. And uh, Saipan was uh, very, very rough. Saipan's principal crop was uh, growing sugarcane. And about five months prior, they began bombing. So pretty much the foliage had been burned off of Saipan. And uh, in those days, an infantry company had 188 men. And uh, during the Pacific War, we did not get replacements in combat uh, until we went to Okinawa. And uh, at the end of the time, we were in the line, and when we finally came back out to a safe area, we had 48 men left in our company. Now, not all of them were killed, but... Uh, we have a, uh, you know, I, I guess at least a third were killed, maybe a half. We had a lot of uh, heat casualties uh, from uh, the heat, and uh, people were they were so bad that many of them had to be evacuated. And uh, after our combat there, we left and we went below the equator to regroup to a place called the New Hebrides. And then we got replacements for those people that we had lost on Saipan. Well, let you, uh, you know what I think I'd like to do, Scooter, is we're going to go to break. And when we come back, I'd like to learn more about the Battle of Saipan. Uh, that was in the, uh, the Battle of Saipan and the Marianas. Was that about the same time, same place? Explain that to me. Uh, yes. Okay. Okay. We're going to go to break then, and you can break that down for us. Uh, Before we do that, though, it is a great time to be a sports fan. The NHL and the NBA are in their playoffs, and Rockies baseball is underway, and Hooters Restaurants is my sports headquarters. Hooters Restaurants is the place to watch all the games. Wednesday is Wing Day. All the wings you can eat for $14.99. Try their smoked wings. They are delectable and only half the calories. And and uh, Hooters wings can fly. When I have the girls over on Wednesday nights, we have them delivered right to my front doorstep. And the girls love they also them. Have a, they also have a great fish sandwich at Hooters. Do they? Okay, that's good. Yeah. I haven't tried that yet, Scooter. I'll have to do that. So it's Very good. <laughs> I'll try that. So what are your Hooters to go, have them delivered right to your front door, or watch the game at Hooters. More information, visit HootersColorado.com. That's HootersColorado.com. And let them know that Kim Munson and Scooter Barclay sent you. So we'll be right back. Hey, welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com. All the shows are archived there. And sign up for my newsletters at americhicks.com forward slash Kim, and we'll keep you apprised of all of the upcoming shows and topics. Be sure and like and follow me on Facebook and Twitter. And uh, I am absolutely thrilled to be talking with World War II veteran Scooter Barkley. He served in the Pacific Theater. Uh, His uh, very first uh, combat was on Macon Island, and then his next combat was on Saipan. And, you know, Scooter, as you mention the losses, um, the casualties, you said you did not get any replacements till you got to, I think, was it Okinawa, did you say? But but you started out with 188 men in your company, and you got down to 48. And as a mom, uh, I, I think about it, I, you know, every one of those young men was loved and cared about by somebody back home. Um, that had to be difficult for everybody back home as these, uh, these uh, lives were lost. Uh, yeah, we had a, a, a way of writing back home. It was called Gmail. And uh, we had a little letter that you folded that you opened up 
and you vote on this. And then they took them back to division headquarters and they photographed these on 16 millimeter film. Then they sent them to the States. Then in the States, they, they uh, took the film and enlarged it to the size of, of the, of the B-mail when you wrote it, folded it up and it was free and they sent it to whomever you were sending it to. Now you uh, were subject to having your your letters uh, uh, the word escapes me, but somebody like higher censored. up would look yeah, at censored. it uh-huh. and, and scratch out things that you weren't supposed to talk about. For example, you, sh- you shouldn't say I'm on Saipan or, or whatever. And they're censoring, I guess you called it. Uh-huh. And uh, so that, that was the only way we got any letters back home. If I was to get an answer... I would say that uh, from the time I wrote a letter and until the time I got an answer was probably about 45 days. So communication was very slow. Well, and today we can talk to people across the world, you know, with cell phones in just, you know, seconds. So I don't think that people really understand, you know, what was going on back in World War II with you guys. They have no comprehension at all. And uh, Saipan was kind of interesting because uh, the Marines were there, and uh, the Marines are uh, kind of a gung-ho outfit. Uh, They just land somewhere, and they immediately go into battle, and it's straightforward and not much fire and maneuver. In the Army, we did what you call fire and maneuver. You would fire and maneuver around under the fire, and take a little more time to get to your objectives, but have less casualties. And the uh, Marine general was named Howling Mad Smith. And our general was another army general by the name of Smith. And they got into an argument and uh, General Howling Mad was a lieutenant general. Our, Our Smith was a major general. So he relieved our General Smith and uh, our, our, our division and uh, regiment got a little bit of a black name for this, but it was really, in my opinion, rather undeserved because of the differences in the way we, we fought during the war. And I had a very interesting job. I was a radio operator for the company commander, and... Uh, I got my radio, which by by today's standards was quite simple, but they gave it to me on the dock when we left Hawaii. And so uh, not anybody really knew much about it. And uh, I had an assistant who uh, carried some of my stuff, and I gave him my weapon, my M1 that I had had for, I guess, since basic training which I knew the, the uh, sight setting to fire at 200 yards and hit a target. And uh, during the battle for Macon, the uh, 106th Infantry, which was a part of our division, uh, Macon had a kind of a high ridge that ran down the center of the island. We were getting up towards the north, and the, uh, the Japanese did a... a uh, kamikaze attack sort of thing, but on the ground, they had another name, Jim Cannon, maybe, I'm not sure. And they went all the way through the 106. So we were up on the hill the next day. They, they had all gone all the way back to our artillery, and then our troops down there were pushing the Japanese back. And I could see you couldn't dig a foxhole on a Pacific island because you ran into coal quite low, but you would dig what we call the slip trench and pile up a little coral around the trench. And I could see a Japanese soldier down in the uh, slip trench and his helmet kind of, kind of glinted in the sun. And uh, we were not doing anything particular. So I told my helper, give me my old M1. It was a little pine tree there. I put the... Uh, M1 in the crotch of a pine tree that settled it and gave him my field glasses, which I had picked up from a dead mortar man. I always did that in combat. 
you always found a dead mortarman, and they always had field glasses, and so I would have a set and ask him to spot for me. So we started spotting and adjusting, and finally we got to, he said, I think you, you're there, you're on the switch. I said, it was a day, fortunately, when there's no wind, and this guy would keep popping his head up, and I would shoot, and finally uh, I shot, and he said, I think you got him, I think you got him. Well, we never could go down there to check. He never did stick his head up again, and we figured that I had 28 clicks of elevation. My normal elevation was six clicks. We figured that it was 800 yards. So I believe that I shot a Japanese at 800 yards in the days before we started using the scopes on our rifles. Gee, Mani, Scooter, that is, <laughs> that's amazing. Now, explain to our listeners what field glasses are exactly. Well, field glasses are binoculars, and uh, the mortarmen used binoculars because they had to observe where their mortar shells landed, and the mortarmen would fire a shell at a target. One would maybe go over, so they would adjust, try to get one that would be short, and then they would adjust between those two uh, sightings that they had, and what they had in the middle would normally hit the target. And they used field glasses to see this because the mortar shells went out as far as maybe 3,000 yards. Wow. So binoculars, field glasses. Yeah, okay. You want to call them. Okay. So this, uh, during this particular. Uh, time, then you said, I've got to back up here just a little bit. You guys didn't really have foxholes. Continue on. What else happened on Saipan? Well, a very interesting thing happened to me. And uh, we had pushed inland and sealed off the Machinado Peninsula. Saipan had a little bay called Magician Bay, which is about three and a half miles wide. And since we were not in combat at that moment, for some reason, they called all the officers and the the sergeants that were in charge of the platoons back to headquarters. Well, they went back there, They and I was operating the radio so I could hear all the messages that went out throughout the entire battalion, all the companies and from the battalion commander and whatnot. So I had a very unique job. And they said, display your aircraft panels. And these were uh, orange uh, panels that you put out so that when you were in the front line and airplanes were bombing ahead of you, they would know to go beyond your orange panel. When we did that, a uh, eight-inch Japanese gun across Magician Bay started firing on us. Immediately, of course, we took our panels in, but I got on the radio and said we were fired on by this gun across the bay, and what are we doing? We have a thing called uh, Joint Army-Navy Ship Control, JANSCO, and so we had a map that we laid over the whole island. On the left side were letters, on the right side were numbers, so you could go to C7 and pinpoint a spot. So they said, well, wait a minute, we'll see if we can get some fire for you. In about maybe five minutes, at the head of Magician Bay, a, a battleship and a cruiser got out there. And uh, it was uh, on the other side from where we were, of course, the Japanese territory. They saw some Japanese walking down the road and obliterated them. And then uh, uh, I tried to get some fire going and make an adjustment. And we, we were not on gun target lines, so it was difficult at that time in, in our uh, military way of doing things. But the Japanese gun did not know that the battleship and cruiser were out there, stuck its head out of its little cave and fired. When it did, the cruiser and the battleship literally obliterated the Japanese gun. And the reason I know that was about a week or 10 days later, we had fought our way around to the other side of the Jishin Bay. And uh, I sat up there on the ridge 
above the cave, so I walked down to the cave, and the battleship has literally eaten away about oh, eight or ten feet of the coral. The eight-inch gun was broken in half, and there were seven or eight gun crew guys all laying around dead. And uh, that was, uh, you know, I thought a very interesting thing. While I was sitting there, up, went back up on the hill, the, uh, the Marines were crazy. And there was a, a, a Marine tank going around down below, firing at things. And uh, over thousands or maybe millions of years, the sea had washed away so that there were pinnacles. And there was a pinnacle that was probably 300 feet up, uh, and it was around maybe uh, 50 yards across or whatever. And the uh, Japanese or the Marine tank fired at a little uh, hut at the base of this pinnacle. When it did, the pinnacle exploded, just blew up. It was before atomic bombs were used. But literally, it blew a cloud, just like an atomic bomb explosion, about six feet, 6,000 feet in the air. And, uh, you know, I thought that was a, a kind of a remarkable thing to see. And the fact that I have, as a sergeant, directed the fire indirectly of a battleship and a cruiser was a very, very unique experience. Well, that's for sure. And as the radio operator for the battalion commander, I, I mean, that's a pretty big responsibility. How were you chosen for that? Well, I was not the battalion commander as radio operator. I was the company commander. Oh, the company commander. Okay, got it. I was chosen for it because, well, a company has uh, three rifle platoons and a heavy weapons platoon, and it has a headquarters. And because I had gone to college and I could type and do some things that not everybody could do, I was in the headquarters as a clerk. But when they issued the radio in Hawaii before we left, they gave it to the headquarters and I became the radio operator. So how far were you from the front lines of the combat then? Well, I was close enough to see my big, my regimental commander get shot between the eyes. Yeah, that's pretty close. Uh, we had come to a little clearing, and uh, the, the, the regimental commander, was Con, his name was Conroy, and uh, we had gotten up into this clearing. We had a guy in our company named Wahoo McDaniel, and when we got there, the Japanese shot him right in the top of his, above his forehead, the bottom part of his helmet. The ball, the bullet went in and it hit the helmet liner and it went over the round, the top of his head and out the back. But it knocked him out and we thought he had been killed. Sure. And uh, the uh, regimental chaplain came up, it was going to give him last rites, I guess. And Colonel Conroy came up to see what was going on, and we said, sir, get down, get down, get down. They're shooting at us. And about that time, uh, he got one right between the eyes. Mm-hmm. So then the chaplain did have somebody to give last rites to. Uh, President Roosevelt's son had led a uh, raid on Macon Island prior to that uh, and then they just waited and left again. He came up to observe, and he saw what was going on, decided that was not a good place for him, so he left. <laughs> and uh, so I got to see a good bit of combat that way. And, uh, you know, war is war. Yeah. Well, I, I, I tell you, Scooter, that's that's tough. Um, the Battle of Saipan, how long did it last? When did you guys know it was over? Well, I can't give you a number of days, but I'm going to say that it was a month, a month and a half. And, and uh, when we got out, uh, again, we didn't have uh, replacements, but to get ready for the next battle, which would be Okinawa, 
we went below the equator to the, to the New Hebrides, where we did training there, and uh, got ready to go to Okinawa. Okay, well, you know what? Let's go to break. Uh, we have one more segment. This is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks World War II Project, and I'm talking with Scooter Barkley, who uh, was with the 27th Division. He uh, fought at the Battle of uh, Macon as well as at Saipan, and then uh, they were sent south of the equator where they were uh, preparing for the Battle of Okinawa. So this is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks uh, talking with Scooter Barclay, and we will be right back. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com. All of these shows are archived there. And uh, sign up for my emails. We'll let you know of upcoming guests, topics, and important events. Uh, Very honored and thrilled to be talking today with uh, Scooter Barclay. He's a World War II veteran and uh, just a kid. I mean, they were just kids that stood up against tyranny, both in the European theater against uh, Hitler and then also in the Pacific Theater against the Japanese. Uh, these are riveting stories that you are sharing with us, Scooter. Thank you so much. Uh, so the Battle of Saipan is over and you are sent south of the equator to prepare for Okinawa. And the guys that I've talked to, uh, if in fact we had invaded Okinawa, we would have had significant additional losses, as at least that's what most of the guys tell me. What's your thoughts, Scooter? Well, Okinawa to me was quite interesting because... Oh, you know what? uh, I'm actually confused. We did have the Battle of Okinawa. I was thinking of invading Japan. Excuse me. (laughs) Well, I'm going to tell you a little bit about that, though. When we went to Okinawa, uh, we we fought, and uh, it was where the uh, Japanese and the kamikazes that came down out of Japan tried to get our fleet, and it was the largest... uh, uh, amphibious invasion, I, and it's certainly in the Pacific, and I think even greater than maybe D-Day in Europe. And so we were able to see these planes come in literally by the hundreds, you know, one after another, and go out. We saw them hit aircraft carriers and cruisers and, and you know, various ships. And uh, it became apparent to the Japanese, though, that that they were losing and. Uh, they got uh, a battle below there, I think the Coral Sea, which was south of there somewhere, and lost most of their fleet and whatnot. And I guess they decided to give up the war. And uh, so one, they did. They did. And uh, the, uh, you know, all at once uh, the, the people started shouting the war is over and people are firing their rifles up in the air and you were in danger of getting hit by bullets falling down. MacArthur was an extremely intelligent guy who had been in the Orient in, in the Philippines for quite some time before the war. He was a uh, self-enamored with himself, of course, but he realized that the Japanese revered the emperor and that... If they were, if we were have any success in Japan, we needed to work through the emperor. Now the emperor was not really uh, innocent as to what went on in the war. People didn't realize that. But MacArthur did everything that he did in Japan through the emperor. Worked with the emperor on everything, and so everything that came out to the Japanese came out as a dual proclamation between MacArthur and the emperor, but under the emperor's uh, supervision, I guess, or Aegis or whatever word you want to use. So uh, I think that today the friendly relations that we have with Japan came about because of the intelligence of General MacArthur, who worked with the emperor and because it was quite vain, of course, the President of the United States finally relieved him, but uh, we owe a lot to MacArthur. Okay. Well, let talk, let's talk some more about the Battle of Okinawa. Are there any other additional, you know, of your individual experiences that you comes to mind that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, it was the first time 
in the Pacific War that we got replacements. And the day that we got our replacements, uh, we were, I was trying to, I was a, by that time I was the platoon leader of a platoon, and uh, we didn't have any officers left, in it, and so therefore I was an acting officer. I uh, looked down, and there was a little uh, cart craft, and uh, they had bombed it, and the Japanese had uh, a, a type of, uh, uh, well, they would put this uh, bomb in a hole, and it had a, a, a little uh, sunlight thing that stuck up in the air and had acid in it. When that thing got broke, the acid went down in and set off a battery that would cause an explosion. And I looked down, and I was trying to get the names of everybody, and I saw this gentleman, young young replacement, stood up, and as he stood up, the whole uh, broken-down crater in that little teeny bridge exploded, threw him about 100 yards out into the flat of a... Of a rice paddy and nobody knew who he was so uh, I got a uh, another person to go with me and we went out and uh, what you did in those days if you couldn't haul somebody away you took their dog tags and you forced it between their teeth at that time the Japanese further up started shooting down at us we had to get out of there, so we put the dog tags in his teeth and we left. He was listed as missing in action. After the war, I went to Hawaii, and they have a place called Punchbowl. Mm-hmm. And while they had cemeteries and all the places, ultimately they took all the burials in the various cemeteries, like Saipan and Tarawa and other places, and they moved them to the Punchbowl in Hawaii. Uh, right at the moment, his name escapes me, but I knew his name, went up to the punch bowl, and they listed casualties. They had a big, big, big board up there, casualties, and then missing in action. He was missing in action. I knew how he had died. I knew what his name was. I knew his hometown. So after the war, he was from a place in Ohio. And I can't, I, I, for the life of me, I can't resuscitate his name real fast. But I went back, and uh, his family was no longer in Ohio, so I was never able to tell his family anything about it. Well, you but, know, uh, Scooter, is I, I'm just thinking, uh, again, I'm just thinking about this, that this young guy, he probably was 18, 19, 20 years old. He couldn't have been that old, and... and um, you know, the fact that they had a missing in action, his family didn't know, you knew his story and you were never able to share that with his his family. I mean, it really touches my heart, uh, th- these individual stories that you're telling me, Scooter. Well, we all have our stories, and I'm sorry that my memory is, if I had some time... You're doing really, I'm, really well. <laughs> I might be able to resuscitate the name, but I can't think of it right now. Well, you know what will happen is you'll think of it in the middle of the night, and so I should have you call me. You can tell me. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we're we're getting close to. We've got probably about ten more minutes, uh, and this is just really fascinating. Anything else about Saipan that you want to tell us? Saipan was uh, the Japanese were very brutal. They uh, on Saipan they had. As I said, a sugar cane was the crop. And whenever we would take an objective, the only Japanese bodies that we ever saw were those that we killed when we took the objective. But beginning about five months before we actually landed, they began putting all their bodies in a burial area but didn't bury them. And uh, when the battle was kind of over, I guess, Certainly it was for us. My company got the job of going down into that burial area and burying all the Japanese. And uh, uh, some of them had been laying there five months. So what you saw was a a very blackened skeleton with maggots crawling in and out of the orifices. 
And uh, if you've ever smelled a dead something on the road or something, the smell of death is horrible. When we went into that area, there was not a man in my company that didn't vomit and vomit and vomit. We were there probably five days, and during that time, we uh, uh, had bulldozers, and we were just taking bulldozers them into big holes and covered up them with dirt. And so we buried probably 5,000 bodies, I'm going to guess. Wow. And uh, at the end of three days, we could sit there and look down at those bodies that we were burying and eat our sea rations, and it didn't bother us much at all. Now, going forward a little bit, I have been very fortunate to participate in some uh, trips that veterans from World War II were, were taking the Greatest Generations Foundation mm-hmm. and a, uh, and another one, uh, something or other Western. And uh, these were all free. So I've been to the Pacific twice, Guam, Pinion, and Saipan, and found the bottle, the beach where I landed and whatnot, but also went to, to uh, Iwo Jima. And I've been to Iwo Jima twice. And uh, what we would do is uh, we would sit on one side and the Japanese would sit on the other side. In between would be the monuments that uh, honored both Japanese and Americans from World War II. We had a, a gentleman who had fought with the Marines who later became a lieutenant general who realized that we were there because our country put it there. We didn't particularly hate Japanese as we were growing up. They didn't particularly hate Americans. So we would gather down there and commemorate the battle for Iwo Jima. And uh, I noticed one time that, uh, well, I often wondered why all the Japanese came down. Shintos and Buddhists and whatnot have different religions. So I guess they came down religious-wise. I noticed that the first time we were there, that the Japanese just really gathered around this one guy. And I often thought that he must have been a survivor and had come down there and they wanted to talk to him. So uh, I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, it is pr- pretty fascinating, Iwo Jima. Now, you said you you were not involved in the battle there, but... No, you, only, only Marines. Only the Marines. And I was on it. And, uh, and that is the battle where, the, for the Marine Memorial, they have the, the sculpture of the you guys bet. that are you raising uh-huh. the uh, the flag for um, on Mount Saribachi, which was really yeah. important. And what you guys now, were doing... Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to tell one more quick, interesting story, because you're okay. running out of time, I know. Okay. After the war, when I was on Okinawa, I, I, I ended up being a Green Beret, you know, for 18 years. Oh. And uh, I was a ranger trained, and uh, uh, my, I speak a foreign language, Thai. I went to the language school for a year to learn Thai. And I was on, uh, uh, on Okinawa, and I, I uh, was there for three years. I even found a, a a foxhole that I helped dig in World War II, which is a unique story that we probably don't have time for. But I uh, we we didn't have much to do in the evenings, and we were staying with uh, in a in in Hokkaido, which is northern Japan, the northern island. And at night we would go in town and we would drink. And we would go to this, this, it's kind of a nightclub bar, place to eat, and they had hostesses who were not prostitutes, but uh, I, I guess some might have been, I don't know. Anyway, uh, one day uh, there was a, obviously a Japanese soldier, and it was probably the first week I was there, and he came down and he somehow knew some English. So I said, were you in World did you fight during the war? And he said, yes, sir. I was on Okinawa. And I said, well, I was on Okinawa, too. And uh, where were you? And I said, well, Machinado. I was at Machinado. So I had a chance to talk to a foreign enemy. And I went there every night, I think, for the rest of the 
six or eight weeks we were there because we were running a ski school. And being a Green Beret, you had to have a summer and a night uh, expertise. My uh, I was, a skier was my expertise. Mountain climbing was my summer. My winter was skiing. So I got an opportunity to run a ski school for the for the uh, Special Forces Company on Okinawa. And I, I never ran into the guy again, so I lost an opportunity. Wow. Well, we've got about three minutes. Do you think you can tell the foxhole story in three minutes? The foxhole story? Yeah, you said that you uh, had, a, I think, a foxhole story on Okinawa, but you weren't sure there was enough time to tell the story. But maybe if we hurry, well, you can well, share when it. when I got ready to come home from the Pacific, we, we deployed back from Okinawa. And I went up back up into the hills where we had fought on Saipan. We went to Saipan to deploy back and went back up into the hills. And I found a stretcher with a dead Marine on it that had been there for two or three years. And uh, so I was able to recover one that had been listed as missing in action. But his dog tags and everything were with him. So I'm sure that the ultimately straightened that out so that was a good thing that I was part of mm-hmm. and I stayed in the army by the way spent 30 years retired as a lieutenant colonel and uh, have been in Texas ever since Scooter Barkley this has just been absolutely fascinating uh, what a history that you've had uh, just very quickly when you think about the young people in America today what is it that you would like to tell them well, I would tell them two things. Number one is that they have no idea what war was like, that what was an atrocity today was not an atrocity then. People came up and I saw them say, you're not going to take my place back on a boat and kill them. Uh, number two, we owe an awful, the black people in America owe a great deal to the first baseball player that was in the American leagues and played for New York. Uh, and uh, Branch Ritchie got him. And uh, before that, blacks could have only drink out of their fountain. They could only ride in the black of the bus. They couldn't uh, eat in the same restaurant. They couldn't do anything. And because of that baseball player, they advanced to where they are today. Wow. Well, it's quite a country that we have. And thank you so much for your years and years of service. Uh, It's just been a real honor to talk with you, Scooter Barclay, about your experiences in World War II. And uh, so this is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks World War II Project uh, signing off. And uh, God bless you and God bless America. Join us next time for the World War II Project and your host, the AmeriChick, Kim Munson. Until then, keep saluting the greatest generation.